Good morning. I ask you to turn to Psalm 5. I'm going to be reading the entire psalm this morning. Um, And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. And those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is God's holy word. I know that some people think it's it's dated, it's, it's out of date, it's awkward, even offensive to, to label something or to label someone as evil. In our culture, in Western societies, uh, we don't like uh, to say that anybody or anything is wicked or evil. And, and I, would, I would agree that uh, that some religious people and uh, some moralistic folks uh, make comments that go too far about who is evil and what is evil, when it may be a matter of perspective or culture or background or opinion. Um, but I, I do think there is a problem in our society today in, in the fact that in our society, everyone, uh, w- one of the unspoken Uh, precious uh, rules in our society is that everyone must for herself or himself find their own truth. Uh, That truth at the end of the day is really subjective. So everyone must seek out their own truth. And uh, the problem with that is at the end of the day, we, we can't agree on what is wrong. If, if there really is no truth and truth is what you want it to be and truth is what you discover for yourself, Um, then we cannot agree on what is wrong and we cannot agree on what is dangerous. We can't even agree on what is unjust. Now, people don't want to admit it, but the opposite is true as well, that we cannot agree on what is good and we cannot agree on what is right and what is just if there is no truth. 
The Psalms are not so uncertain. You see the psalmist again and again being very candid about what David says here or who David says here is evil or wicked. I don't think you can pray well. We're working through Psalms in the summer. And the Psalms are sung prayers. They're composed prayers. And they're for us. In every situation, we can see how God's people um, in ancient times uh, address God in their joy, in their distress, in their calamity, in their victory. I don't think you can pray well. I don't think you can pray with purpose. I don't think you can pray with effect. I don't think you can pray with honesty unless you wrestle with evil. Unless you're willing to face evil. I don't think you can have a good prayer life. I keep talking about Eugene Peterson's book on prayer called Answering God. Eugene Peterson writes that psalm prayers, as you go through the psalms, uh, psalm prayer finds that the way things are is pretty bad. Evil is encountered. Wickedness is confronted. This prayer quickens the pulse and shout and shoots adrenaline into the bloodstream. The people who practice this prayer get excited. They yell and gesture. Gesture. Uh, that's kind of how I was raised in a Sicilian family. We get excited and we yell and we gesture. So I, I kind of find some comfort in the Psalms when I see that happening. But Peterson says uh, they yell and gesture. Prayer is combat. He writes. And I hope you see through Psalm 5 that genuine prayer is honest about evil. But it's also hopeful about God's help from it. And what I hope you're going to see in Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 5 is that God is our protection. God is our guidance. And God's our assurance in a world where enemies exist. God is your protection. God is your guidance. And God is your assurance. Genuine prayer seeks protection. David, in a sense, is praying with his eyes open. I've got kids, and you get around the dinner table, and you thank God for the meal. And, and you, you try and train your kids to close their eyes while you pray. And, and eventually, a kid gets old enough and says, what, why do we close our eyes when we pray? Well, that's true. There's nothing magical about closing your eyes. God doesn't listen to you better if your eyes are closed when you pray. It, it's just a way, son. It's just a way, uh, my daughter, to, to focus and not get distracted by what's going on around you while you're thanking God or asking God for something. David, in a sense, is praying with his eyes open. David is praying very much aware of what's going on in the world around him. And so he says in verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. If you're a Christian and there is no opposition in your life, um, there may be something wrong with your version of Christianity. David understands that to faithfully follow the one true God, uh, uh, there are consequences that go along with your affiliation. There are social consequences. In David's case, there were political consequences as a king. Uh, there are spiritual consequences. There may be consequences where you work as a result 
of your faith. But at some point in your life, if you're following Jesus, just read what he says in the New Testament, you're going to have to confront some type of opposition because of your allegiance to him. And David was very aware of that as he prays. So he asks for protection for himself, of course. But he also asks for protection for other like-minded people who had the same faith he did. Verse 11, he says, and this is maybe one of the most encouraging passages in all the Psalms. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. And so we see here that a genuine prayer life is not a self-centered one. That a genuine prayer life recognizes your own need for protection, but then based on that, reaches out to God, interceding for the needs of others who need protection just as much as you do, maybe more. Now, you may be saying, hold on a second, didn't Jesus, because I've read the New Testament, or at least parts of it, didn't Jesus say that we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for our enemies? Why is David just praying for himself and for his friends? Well, you're right. Love your enemies, pray for them that persecute you, is something that Jesus said. Again, I want to quote Eugene Peterson, because he brings this up. He says, listen. Loving your enemies presupposes that you know they're there. Loving your enemies presupposes that you have begun to identify them. Enemies, especially for those who live by faith, are a fact of life. If we don't know we have them or who they are, we live in a dangerous naivete. So as we love our enemies and pray for those who are against us, As Jesus said, that presupposes that we are aware people are against us. There are some people who don't like us. There are some people who want our job and they're willing to say whatever they need to say to get our job. People don't like the way we act. People don't like the things that we've done or the things that we've said or the things that we believe. Somebody at some point is going to be against you. And what Peterson is saying is, look, if you're going to pray for your enemies, you kind of need to identify who they are first. Okay. And David understands that if you're affiliated to the one true God, well, eventually um, you're going to rub up against some adversity. So genuine prayer assumes that evil exists and that maybe there is evil that is directed against you. And genuine prayer asks for protection from it. After all, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil in his Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want to ask you a question. In addition to needing protection, so let's say you have an enemy, right? Maybe you've, let's assume you've done nothing wrong, but somebody's opposed to you. Maybe some of you have a military background and the concept of enemies or opponents is very real to you. Maybe you have had adversaries of a non-military nature. Maybe someone in your home, maybe somebody at work or in the school system or in your neighborhood, whatever it may be. When you realize you have an enemy, what do you need in addition to protection? I want to hear from you. So that's an obvious. You have an adversary, you need protection. Okay, well, what else do you need if you're aware that you're facing an adversary? You need intelligence. What do you mean by intelligence? You need to be smart? Okay. 
You need to know what they know and what they want. Okay, yeah. Any other thoughts? You need a strategy. Okay. You, you need a strategy in how to confront them. Uh, maybe it's a strategy to bless them, but nonetheless, it's a strategy. Maybe it's a strategy to defeat them, but nonetheless, it's a strategy. Okay, intelligence. You need to know what they know and what they want. You need a strategy to know how to approach them, how to respond. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. You, you need the bigger, pic, the bigger picture. So, it, so there's intelligence. There's reconnaissance, too. What, what's the bigger picture? What's the history to the situation? What's going on all around us? What's going on all around them? Why would they feel the way they feel? And why do they have that position? I disagree with it. But why have they come to that conclusion? Yeah. Yeah. You need self-control. If you're aware, that's very good. You need, to, you need, you need self-control if you know you have an adversary. You need the faith to know who is really in control. Yes, you need to be aware. And can I broaden that out and say you need to be aware of what you can and can't accomplish. What, what tools and resources and powers and abilities you have and, and what you don't have. Yes, yes, right. I, I understood that. You need to know that God's in control and you are not, right? Okay, over here. Colleagues and advisors. There's a proverb, something about many advisors leads to a good conclusion. That's a paraphrase. Yeah. You need resolve and courage. Yeah. And I'm going to relate that back to Jane's comment. Uh, you can have a false sense of courage that, that, you know, you can be very courageous, but you're trusting in your own resources and strength. Um, and you need resolve, uh, but... Um, you need the right kind of resolve. You need, see, you're starting to say things and they all have to fit together because if you have resolve without intelligence, you're in big trouble. If you have courage uh, without a sensible approach on how to confront, you may make a mistake. So you see, it's actually kind of complicated. I want to, um, those are great answers. And I want to go to back to the very first answer that we heard. Um, it, because it's the one that was most on my mind, and I think in this psalm, it's, it's the one that's most on David's mind. David, David prays for guidance because of his enemies. He's not just praying for protection. He's asking for guidance. Genuine prayer not only seeks protection, but genuine prayer seeks guidance. I think by meditation, and we're, the early psalms talk all about meditation, right? Medi- meditation, biblical meditation, that you see in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 3. Uh, meditation is the key uh, between the Word of God uh, existing and the Word of God permeating your thoughts and your, li- and your very life. Right? We need to meditate on God's Word, not just talk about it, not just study it, not just memorize it, but meditate on God's Word. So meditation and prayer is a way of gathering intelligence. It's a way of gathering an accurate perspective on what's really going on in a world where evil exists, where maybe even evil is directed at you, where you may even have an enemy, whether the enemy means well 
or whether the enemy does not mean well. David says again in verse 8, I'll repeat it. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Lead me, O Lord. He says, make your way straight before me. David understands he not only needs to be protected, but he needs to be on the right path. He needs direction. He needs guidance because of his enemies. Do you want guidance? We often want God to tell us what to do. Uh, We often ask God, show me the way, help me make a good decision. And what we often mean by that is, God, I'm going to go to a Chinese restaurant tonight. And when I break open that fortune cookie, whatever it says needs to be the answer, the job you want me to take, the person you want me to marry, the response you want me to make to that person who hates my guts at work. We generally ask God for guidance in those terms, like we're looking for him to open up the clouds and make a declaration to us, right? Like we're Moses or something. God doesn't often do that to us, does he? And David right here is saying, Lord, I need guidance. I need to be on the right path. And and here's how I think we develop that sense of guidance, the guidance we need in, in, in a hostile environment. By a rhythm, a rhythm of prayer in our life. Eugene Peterson talks about the rhythm of morning and evening prayer. We saw in Psalm 1 how how the blessed person meditates on God's law day and night, right? Well, if you look at the early Psalms, and remember, the Psalms were edited somewhat thematically. They're not all in chronological order. They're edited for the purpose of teaching us how to pray. And what you see in the early Psalms is a pattern of morning and evening prayer. If you remember Psalm 3, in verse 5, David said, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Okay, well, that seems to be a morning prayer. And then in Psalm 4, David said, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Okay, well, there's an evening theme. That seems to be an evening prayer. He needed to get some sleep. He needed to trust God in order to sleep. And now here in Psalm 5 in verse 3, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice and watch. See, the early Psalms portray this this, uh, sense of morning and evening and morning and evening and prayer throughout all of it. What you see in the early Psalms is this portrayal of evening prayer as a plea for peace and rest the evening prayers you see here it's the psalmist asking god for for a system reboot right the world's crazy i got all sorts of things going on this one's angry at me Uh, i don't know what to do i'm scared about this i'm worried about that i need to get some sleep and if i'm going to actually sleep i need to surrender control or i'm never going to go to sleep so you see in the evening prayers this plea for peace and for rest In the morning prayers, you see this plea for action. David's got a different focus in this psalm. You see a plea in the morning for action, for justice, for progress. In the evenings, uh, you see a a posture of submission, which is an act of faith. If you're going to fall asleep, you need to submit your control to your heavenly father in order to get some sleep. If you, if you believe you have to stay in control, friend, you're not going to go to sleep, okay? So you see in, in those evening prayers a posture of submission. You see in the morning prayers a posture of expectation. 
It's still faith, but it's faith oriented somewhat differently. Evening, posture of submission. Morning, a posture of expectation. Again, verse 3, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. What's he watching for? It's, he's not watching for his enemies. It's not like the night watch. It's the daytime now. Watch means he's waiting for God to move. He's expectant that God's going to act. The old English preacher in the 1800s, uh, Charles Spurgeon, said this, speaking of the Psalms, prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. I think that sums it up. Now, are the Psalms prescribing for us a daily formula for prayer? No, it's the Psalms are not a, a multi-step guide for perfect prayer, you know, your prayer life now. It's, it's nothing like that. Uh, the Psalms are giving us a picture of what genu- a genuine prayer life looks like. The genuine prayer life, is, is, it's, a, it's a rhythm of submission and expectation. It's not that you can't pray expectantly at night or submissively in the morning. That's not the point. But you see in the Psalms a rhythm, a rhythm, submission to God, expect, expectation for what God is going to accomplish according to his promises and his power and his wisdom. We submit to God as king. Notice David's the king and David's submitting to God as king. He calls him my God, my king and my God. Even the king submits. Even the king has a king. So we submit to God as our king, as our protector, as our defender. The Psalms train us to stop relying on ourselves for our protection. Stop relying upon ourselves for our safety, for our significance, and for our identity. Stop relying on ourselves for our guidance and rely on our king in heaven. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, he begins with our father in heaven. Let's start, let's start on the right foot. I'm not God and you are. And you're more than my creator, you're my father. And so now everything I'm going to say and everything I'm going to ask you about and everything I'm going to cry out to you is based on the fact that I know that you are God and I am not and that you love me despite myself. So the Psalms train us right, how to stop relying on ourselves, but we also expect God to advance in his cause for the world and for our community and in his cause for us. So the, the Psalms not only train us how to stop relying on ourselves, but the Psalms train us how to pray for justice, how to pray for peace in Westminster, in wherever you live, in your community, in your county, in, in, the, United, excuse me, in the United States, in the world. Okay? Um, the Psalms train us how to pray for God to act. How to pray for God to protect people who can't protect themselves. How to pray that God would not only vindicate you when you're wrongly accused and wrongly abused, but for God to act and work for those who cannot speak for themselves and defend themselves. This is what the Psalms train us how to do. God, act in the world. God, allow your agenda to advance in the world. We get to pray that way. So we submit, but we also expect Okay, Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray expectantly according to God's desires, not simply your own. Karl Barth was a, theolo- a very important theologian in the 20th century. You will probably never hear me quote Karl Barth. Um, 
But I will say this about Karl Barth. He said something very interesting about prayer. He said, when God's people clasp their hands in prayer, it is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And I think that's very true. Very true. You even see David very specifically ask God to work against his enemies. He actually asks God specifically to disrupt their plans. He says in verse 10, let them fall by their own counsels. David actually wants people who are, who are bent on hate, who are bent on deception, who are bent on corruption, who are bent on division to accomplish what they want to accomplish. He, is, he actually asks God to work against them. David is praying for his world. He is not just praying for himself. He is praying for God to act and for God to move. And there's another, there, there's another quote, and I can't remember who said this, but uh, it goes something like this. Satan trembles when even the smallest, weakest Christian is on her knees in prayer. So genuine prayer assumes uh, that God is your protection and that God is your guidance. Now, I want to ask you a question. And, and this is not for open discussion. I just want you to think about it. Do you take evil seriously? Do you take wickedness seriously? I, I know it's, it's not popular to talk about it these days. Not at all. People don't want to talk about the idea of, uh, of a heaven and a hell. People love the idea of heaven. They hate the idea of hell. People love the idea of God's forgiveness. They hate the idea of God's justice. Um, it's very unfashionable. I'll agree. But the Psalms take evil seriously. And I, I want to ask you, do you take wickedness, do you take evil seriously? Maybe, maybe you think, well, people are mostly good, except for the really, really, really hopeless cases. You know, the, uh, uh, the Osama bin Ladens, the, uh, the Hitlers, they're the really bad ones. Um, but other than that, People are basically good. We're all basically okay. Um, that, that's generally the way people in our society think. Um, the, the problem with that is, is really found if you look at the psalm more closely, okay? Look at how David expresses wickedness. Okay? Nobody's committed murder here. Nobody's committed adultery that we know of, okay? What's the wickedness that David is talking about in his prayer to God? What is he crying out against? Specifically, if you look at verses 5 and 6 and verses 9 and 10, David is talking about the wickedness expressed in speech, in words, in communication. He's not talking about murder. He's not talking about theft or infidelity. He's talking about the way people speak. And the way people express themselves and the way people communicate or don't communicate. He says they're boastful. He says they speak lies. They're deceitful. He says there is no truth in their mouth. He says their throat is an open grave. Yikes. Um, he says they flatter with their tongue. And he asks God to use their own counsels, their own scheming, their own plots against them. Let me ask you a question. Do you have perfect speech? Have you been perfect in your words? In your communications? Have you 
been perfect and sinless in your conversations. In what you've said to your family members and your co-workers. Or what you've said about them. Have you been perfect in what you say in social media? When you get frustrated and you have righteous indignation over something that's happening in current events. And you disagree with a post and you post a counter post. Have you been perfect in your communication? Jesus said the requirements of, of a righteous God are so serious that it's not just your deeds, what you do, that makes you unclean in a holy God's presence. It's even your words. It's even what you say that makes you unholy. Even if you don't do a vicious act, even if you just speak viciously or unjustly or demeaningly or divisively, even that makes you filthy in God's presence. The Bible even says that how we think, even before the words, even if we don't speak the actual word, if we say the words to ourselves in our souls, even that makes us unclean in the presence of a holy God. The Bible shows us that the problem is worse than we think because the evil's not just out there, the evil's in here. The evil's in the soul. The evil is in the motivations of the heart. The evil is in the calculations of the mind. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 quotes this, this phrase, their throat is an open grave. And he goes further to show us that the bad news is even more worse than we thought. Uh, he, he says that, 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 that sin, that our propensity to rebel against our creator is so serious that it affects our words, our thoughts, and our actions. And, and Paul says in Romans 3, quoting other Old Testament passages, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. He's just not talking about the most, root, the most ruthless villains that everybody would agree, oh yeah, that person's really wicked. No, he's saying everybody, he's putting us all together. He's putting us all in the same boat saying, no one seeks for God. No one understands. No, it is, no one is righteous. Now, what happens when you don't take evil seriously? I think when you read the Psalms, what you discover is that your prayers are actually shallow. Your prayers are maybe weak. They're definitely safe. If you don't take wickedness serious, if you don't take the, if you don't take the reality of spiritual warfare, uh, which is a sermon for another day, and if you don't take the reality of conflict and the fact that there are people in the world that are opposed to you and that are definitely opposed to you if you are a follower of Jesus, if you don't take that seriously, then your prayers are going to be safe. W what are you praying about? You're praying that the surgery is going to go well? Yeah, of course we want the surgery to go well. But you've got bigger problems. You've got bigger problems than a tumor in your stomach. The Bible says, none is righteous, no, not one. And David says, there are people out there that are dead set against God and his ways and are dead set against you if you want to follow God. Eugene Peterson says, when, when we pray without the recognition that evil exists and that enemies exist. We pray, he says, witless, witless. When we say these words, deliver us from evil. If we're not aware that evil is there, 
then we're praying in a witless way. What hope is there when even your words, the way you've spoken to one another and the way you've communicated, what hope is there for us when even our words expose the true condition of our hearts? What hope is there when even what we say exposes us as guilty before God? Well, the hope is this. The hope is that David knows there's assurance for people who live by faith in this God that the Bible's talking about. Genuine prayer not only asks God for protection and for guidance, genuine prayer assumes assurance. Now, let me tell you what I mean by assurance. You look at verse 7. This is kind of the heart of the psalm. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. That's the key to it all. Steadfast love, it, it was a Hebrew word, it was hesed. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is it is a very important word in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated mercy. Sometimes you'll see it translated loving kindness. In Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? You know that part? Well, the mercy in that verse is this word. And whenever you see it in the Old Testament, it, it describes God's covenant love for his people. Now, why do I say covenant love? Because based on his promises, he loves his people. And when you see that word come up, your steadfast love or your mercy or your loving kindness, David is remembering that God is true to his word. That God promises to uphold his end of the bargain. That God promises to keep his covenant with his people. And David is saying, through the abundance of your steadfast love will I enter your house. David knows that he's really no different than his enemies. You see what's really happening here? David is aware of his enemies, but he does not believe he's better than them. This is the, if you're a Christian living in today's world, this is the key. You cannot believe that you are better than your enemies. I don't care what they're in for. I don't care what they've said. I don't care what they've done. A life of faith understands that you're not better than the most wicked people. Because David is not saying, hey, I am perfect. My words are perfect. No, he's not saying that at all. He's not saying, let all who are sinless in their speech rejoice. He says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. David understands that the only hope I have of entering the presence of a holy God is his steadfast love. Not my own good record. And that, that is what's going to keep you focused and aware with good guidance, with the right intelligence, with the right approach, with courage and resolve that is, is properly guided and motivated for the right reasons. Because you say, I am no better than my enemies. The people who want it in for me, the people that I strongly disagree with, right, my competitors, I'm not better than them. In God's eyes, I'm not better than them. And if I can enter into his presence, it is not by my betterness. It is by the fact that God loves me and he's true to his promises to me. His covenant faithfulness. And, and then David says, he closes in verse 12 by saying, for you bless the righteous. And he actually says, how does God do that? What does it look like? He says, you cover him with favor as with a shield. 
That, that's how God uh, gives you his covenant love. That's how God makes it possible for you to enter into his presence is he covers you. He covers you in love. He covers you in faithfulness. And the New Testament says, all the New Testament writers say, the, what, God covers you in something that you don't have yourself. He covers you in his righteousness. Remember when we read Romans chapter 3 earlier? Right? The, right, the, the, the wrath of God is revealed against the wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. But the good news is that there's something else that's being revealed by God. It's not just his wrath. It's his righteousness. It's his righteousness for people who are willing to trust him like David did. And so what happens when you realize, wow, my words and my thoughts and my actions have exposed me as as guilty and naked before a holy God. Jesus says, if you trust me, I will cover you. I will. You're exposed, but I'm going to cover you. I'm going to cover you with my righteousness. You don't have righteousness. I'm going to cover you with mine. I'm going to cover you with favor as with a shield. So just as, just as I'm saying we should take evil seriously in Westminster and in our own hearts uh, and in America, I think we need to take God's solution to evil just as seriously. Okay? God took evil seriously, and the proof of that is he sent his son here. And his son came and his son said, listen, in a wicked world where even you are part of the problem, where, where the wickedness is not just out there, but the wickedness is right inside your soul, I will cover you. You're exposed before a holy God, but I will cover you with my righteousness. Okay. Jesus offers his righteousness to cover us from being exposed by our, by our unrighteousness. And so where did my clicker go? So I want to recap. Genuine prayer is honest about evil. Okay. But it's also honest about God's solution to it, which the Bible calls his salvation received as a gift by trusting in his son, Jesus. And that, my friends, is our protection. And that is our guidance. And that is our assurance in this world where there is evil out there and when there is evil right in your heart. That is what will prevent you from becoming arrogant and self-righteous and judgmental in the presence of your enemies. That's how the gospel works. That's why Jesus can say, pray for your enemies and bless those who curse you. How are, how are you ever going to pray for somebody and ever bless them if you really think you're better than them? You know? I mean, if you humble yourself and realize, man, but for the grace of God, but for the love of God, but for the covering of the righteousness of Jesus, right, I'd be just like them. And, and that's the humility and the grace and the gentleness, the perspective, the guidance that we need to properly move forward in the world. Okay? So now, as a child of God, now we pray with assurance. Based on the covering that Jesus offers you, now you pray with the assurance of knowing God is my heavenly father. He loves me. Nothing is ever going to change that fact. I am covered in his righteousness because he loves me. Now, now that I know that, now that I'm assured of that, now I can pray with expectation. 
Now I'm not just going to ask God for whatever I feel like getting because I'm a spoiled brat. Now I can ask God for what he wants. Now I can even ask God to bless and help my enemies. Now I can ask God to bless and change the lives of the people that are hurting me, the people that I disagree with, because I expect my God to defend his purposes for the world. I expect God to defend his cause, his plan for Westminster, Maryland. Not mine. Forget my plan. Forget yours. What is God's will? With the assurance that he loves you and has covered you in the righteousness of Jesus, now you can expect God to work. And so now you pray, Lord, change me. Reveal the wickedness in my heart and, 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 and now help me to be a blessing. And, and, and the injustice and, and the hate and the sadness that I see in my community and in this world, Lord, I know you have a plan and I'm asking you to work. I'm asking you to work against those who would thwart your plan and I'm asking you to accomplish your purposes, even in me. I think that's how we pray in the presence of evil. Let's pray. Father, Let those who trust in you rejoice. Lord, thank you for covering us like a shield. We ask, we ask, Father, for those who hate us, uh, for those who we perceive are against us, we ask that you would bless them. We ask that you would Pour your kindness upon them as you have poured your kindness upon us. Father, we ask that if we, if we are treating others in an adversarial way, that you would help us to stop and that you would help us to repent. Help us to have the wisdom to distinguish what is evil from what an evil response is. Help us to not respond in kind but to respond as your son did, who laid down his life asking your forgiveness for the people who executed him. Would you give us such love for one another and such love for this community? Uh, Father, we ask that you would work in Westminster, that you would work against uh, the forces and the influences and the neglect that would keep it where it is, that you would make this a beautiful place by your design. And Father, help us to get in tune with what your plan for this place is. Help us to be a church that walks in the light because you are in the light. And help us to move forward on our knees, always repenting, always confessing, always forgiving each other. In Jesus' name, amen.